Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode from Going West 2002, the inimitable Max Cryer diving into the origins of New Zealand English. How did our vernacular dialect develop and why is it uniquely our own? Good morning. A couple of years ago, during a very ordinary night of television, there was a rather ordinary news item, which had one shot of young backpackers, backpackers who used to be called hitchhikers, that's another language change we've assimilated. And the backpackers were clearly from other places, like two, I think, were from Africa, and a couple from Scandinavia, and a couple of Americans, and a couple of Brits. And they were intending to go to an Auckland nightclub. And outside the nightclub, there was a sign telling them what they couldn't wear. No beanies, no singlets, no gumboots, no jandals, no singlets, no swannies. The visitors hadn't got the faintest idea (laughs) what any of this meant. This is understandable because we live in New Zealand. We speak a language of our own. We think we speak English, but then so do the people in Texas. I can tell you that anyone who's traveled will know that you can ride a bus in Yorkshire or buy a beer in Darwin or go to a McDonald's in somewhere like Virginia and you will have no idea what the people around you are saying, although they're supposedly speaking in English. Were those people to come to New Zealand and go to a stock sale in the Waikato, they too would have no idea what was going on. We have dialect. Now, I did a brief examination um, of why we have this. To many of you, it will simply not be news. Other people have studied it. There's one element which I think is new, but I'll skim through the original elements. Communities do develop from what was given to them. Now, in this case, for several hundred years, only one indigenous language was spoken here. And then perhaps in the early days of the 19th or the late 18th century, in started to come other languages, mainly English. But what was relevant was that the English that came into New Zealand was not received standard English at all. It was inclined to be dialectical and it may have come in 10 different versions, from Cornwall, from Lancashire, from Wales, from Ireland, from Scotland, from Shropshire, from Wiltshire. And interestingly, over the the successive 150, 200 years, many of those dialectical words from that era have remained in use here and got lost back home. It was the same when, as producer of Mastermind, which I was for many years, we once had to study camellias. I discovered to my surprise that there are camellia trees dotted around the farms of the South Island which are completely extinct in Europe. They'd come out in 1840 with prosperous settlers, been planted on a farm, loved it, grew to enormous size, remained forever, but had died out back home. And that will happen with words like blatherskite, which in New Zealand is shortened to skite, 
a word sometimes nominated as an all New Zealand word. It's not true. Uh, it is actually a British word, but it's just been shortened here and forgotten there. It's hardly ever used. Then on top of the, the Maori language, which already existed, and the 20 different versions of English which came in, we then had very quickly immigration uh, influx of people from China and later from Holland and from Poland and, of course, Dalmatia and, and also Czechoslovakia, otherwise known as Bohemia. And a large number of foreign elements came into the country and threw their linguistic contribution into the pot. So it's not really surprising that a dialect arose here, which is a little bit different from Australia, Britain, South Africa, Canada, etc. Uh, plus Australia being so close provided interaction, which we'll speak about in a moment. We also have, since the 1960s, a, a most peculiar situation. Cinema, of course, was available for many years before the 1960s and provided both received British accents and American and their vocabulary into the New Zealand psyche. But when television came, a peculiar thing happened. New Zealand is very small. It has very little purchasing power, but it has a wider range than most other countries. And it is quite possible to sit in a New Zealand home and in the one evening see television from Australia, from Britain, from Canada, and from USA. Now that doesn't happen in any of those countries. If you are in America, as I'm sure many of you have been, you will be very lucky if you see television from anywhere except America. Certainly not Australia, Canada or Britain. Uh, Australia tends not to want British television. Britain tends not to want Australian television. In New Zealand, we have influences off the screen from about four major language pools, and that is um, unusual. Now, the last point that I threatened you, there was something weird coming up, <clears throat> and this is my theory, which I've put forward in, in my new book. If anyone wants to shoot me down in flames, this is the book you're shooting down in flames. Because it says in the introduction there that among those academic influences that I've just been talking about, there is one sociological influence which has influenced New Zealand's speech and accent. I refer to false teeth. I can feel it happening. I've been all over the country saying this, and, and it, it's always the same. Let me begin. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, almost every single New Zealander had all their teeth out. Chuckle and giggle if you agree with me. Nobody knows why. It is not for me to comment. Um, I'm a researcher, not a sociologist, but I, I warn you, you literary people out there, that there's a book in there somewhere. No one has yet thought about it, but every New Zealander had all their teeth out. I've done radio sessions about this book and mentioned this, and the callback has gone wild. People ring up saying, my parents had their teeth out, I had their teeth out, my brother had his teeth out when he was 21st, it was his 21st birthday present. <laughs> no. Other men rang up and said exactly the same, that on their 21st birthday, they were given what's called, wait for this, a full extraction. 
And many women rang up and said, yes, yes, we had our teeth out before we were married so that we would not be a financial drain on our husband with all sorts of dentist bills and things. These are young women of 20 and 19, no teeth. Uh, one woman who interviewed me on air was herself 50-something, and she recalled as a child of 13, proud as punch because she was bridesmaid for the girl down the road. And the girl down the road due to tradition, went and had all her teeth out before the wedding, and on the day of the wedding, as the bridesmaids primped, the youngest one, my, my interviewer, was told that her job was to make sure to keep track of the false teeth and that they were put in before we went to the church. <laughs> now, what has this got to do with me? Well, I think false teeth impose um, a restriction on speaking style. And I, I firmly believe that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, New Zealanders developed a horizontal style. <laughs> Most of you are too young. Think of your mothers and fathers. <laughs> but they did. They had to keep all the teeth in place, as a result of which the musculature and the shape retained a sort of a keeping the teeth in place duty, and this affected not only the accent, but it affected the choice of words to be, to be used. For instance, the tip of the tongue at the top of the palate, and you're speaking to an ex-singer here, so I sort of know about palates and stuff, to put the tip of the tongue onto the palate and hold it there requires a minimum, a little burst of energy, which some people are unwilling to do. Hence, instead of film, we would get film. And film is easier to say if you have false teeth than movie. So we grew up taking the films to the chemist and getting back the pictures, which is easier to say than pictures. And it's a theory. You can all shoot me down if you like. But I maintain that for several decades, everybody had false teeth. They learned a style of speaking, which, of course, their children learned, having heard their parents. For several decades, the children also had all their teeth out. So there's a sort of a self-perpetuating um, degree going down to about, what, 1960, mid early 60s, when the teeth stopped. And the sound remained. We still had this narrow sound. Even the people with real teeth learnt to speak at the knee of their parents with false teeth. That's the end of the false teeth bit. You can think about it yourself, and I know that at the Writers' Festival next year, some smart aleck is going to come up with a new book saying, the history of tooth extraction in sociological mid-20th century New Zealand. <laughs> I can see it coming. Now, I want to give you a, sort, a short academic. My training is actually in linguistics, academically. It was much later they found out I could sing. Um, here is a, a little summary of some of the characteristics of New Zealand vocabulary and speech usage. There are four. Number one you've all heard of. It's the terminal lift. Nobody knows why. We won't waste time talking about it. Everybody knows what a terminal lift is. It's when you finish every sentence on the upward tone <laughs> and you're coming on Wednesday. And it's inoffensive, it's harmless, it's, it's sort of quaint. 
it's restricted, I think, to this country, and you write screeds of analysis about it and it'll get you nowhere. Just accept the fact that we have terminal lift. Now, we also have three other things that might not be quite so obvious. We have uh, a characteristic in New Zealand called hypochorism. Now, there is no prize for knowing what that means. Don't feel embarrassed. There may be one or two academics out there who do, but hypochorism is a very rarely used word, only I am going to use it because it describes exactly what many New Zealanders do. Okay, hypochorism is the maintaining of baby talk into adulthood. <laughs> you got it. You got it very quickly. There are several examples in other cultures. Um, Upper-class Britain occasionally uses a little bit of, of uh, hypochorism. And we are inclined to look on words like mummy and daddy and mama and papa as hypochorism, although they're hardly used in this country at all. But we have our own brand. I did you an example. For anyone who's floundering and who's not quite sure what hypochorism is even now, here's an example. We had a beauty barbie, excellent posse by the river. We said tar to the farmer, then we sprayed the mozzies away. The kiddies came down after kindy and they went for a swim in the nutty. We ate sammies and yummy veggies. One of the cousins brought a pommy girlfriend. She was an airline hostie. She said it felt great getting out of heels into flatties. He works as a chippy in Aussie, but he'll be back at Chrissy. All the rallies are gathering, buying prizzies. Cardi for mum, footy boots for Fred, chockies for auntie, there's people in and out all the time for drinkies. Mum's kept busy with the cheese and the bickies. Wouldn't surprise me after Chrissy if I have to throw a sickie. <laughs> I may have exaggerated just a little, but the example is accurate. Every single example there is something that you've heard or possibly even said. There's no crime in it. It's simply called hypochorism, the maintaining of baby speech. You won't hear it in many other languages. Let us look at New Zealand speech characteristic number three. This is an odd one. This is the introduction of the glottal stop. The glottal stop is uh, a deliberate cessation of air in the throat so that the sound you are making actually stops. It is perfectly common in the Samoan language, in the German language, and Tongan, and some South African languages. So if any one of those people is here, they will know straight away what I mean. It is not used in English at all. And that is the reason why received standard English over the years developed two pronunciations for the definite article. The table the apple. Anything that begins with a vowel has the in front of it, and anything with a consonant has the in front of it. The banana, the orange, the apple, the pineapple. You do it even without thinking. It just happens by itself. Not anymore. For some unknown reason, uh, New Zealanders who are normally on the lazy side of speech characteristics have taken unto themselves the use of the glottal stop in front of a vowel noun. Nobody knows why, but it is now perfectly common, perhaps not with that generation whom I can vaguely see have one or two gray hairs, the same color as mine, but at a younger level, I have just finished uh, eight years teaching at Auckland Girls Grammar, 
wonderful school. Every single one of them said, the apple. Uh, it's a generation thing. If you still don't quite know what I mean, here's an example from National Radio. The Office of the Environment provided the Air Force to bring the assistance needed in the eastern part of the island. Now, that required one, two, three, four, five, six, seven glottal stops. Had it been done your way, the Office of the Environment provided the Air Force to bring the assistance needed in the eastern part of the island, it would have had no glottal stops. Why they want to put them in, I don't know. Not my problem. I'm an observer. Now, the indefinite article is represented by the letter A and is pronounced A. Ah. It has been pronounced A ah for so many centuries that no one can remember when or how. Except in New Zealand, where there are two pronunciations, there is A ah and A. And sometimes the A has an intensifier. It is a yum. <laughs> and we went to the party and Fred was accompanied by his a yum auntie. <laughs> Here is one of my favorites, and this is, uh, this is number four of our speech characteristics. If anyone here understands Greek terminology, they'll know straight away what metathesis means. Metathesis is a recognizable uh, uh, grammatical shift. You may not know the name, but you're certainly are going to recognize the tendency. Metathesis, as in its Greek, means the movement of the body, the changing around of the body. And it is the formal name for something which is very peculiar and very New Zealand, to transpose the middle of a word and put it back to front. Now, you've all heard of Dr. Spooner, who was a real person and who had a sort of mental trick of buggering up the initial letters of words. And on one famous equation when Victoria was due at the university or something, he referred to her as the queer old dean. <laughs> and he's now in the dictionary. The Spoonerism is the reversal of the of the beginning of two separate words. Now, metathesis is the inversion of the middle of a word. For instance, I mentioned Auckland Girls Grammar where I had 1,500 delightful, noisy, energetic teenagers, not one of whom said ask. They said ax. They didn't know why. And I don't know why, and I don't want to know why. I'm only observing what's happening. It was metathesis. They inverted not the beginning of the word, but the bulk of the word. The same girls, and indeed many people in this room, and without fail every politician you ever hear being interviewed, does the same thing with the Latin phrase et cetera, which is E-T-C. It is normally, nowadays, reversed into E-C-T and becomes ek cetera, instead of et cetera. Don't ask me why. Here is the mother. It could be the teeth, of course. <laughs> it's actually easier to say et cetera than it is to say et cetera, because that's got the dreaded tip of the tongue going to the palate, et cetera. You've got to hit it there and pull it back. And of course, if you hit the palate with your tongue tip and then pull it back, there's an awful danger the palate itself might come with. <laughs> so you do the k instead, etc., and it's safer on the teeth. 
Let's look at some examples. Secretaries are often transformed into secretaries. We're very frequently told that the mayor is mounting the dais. In fact, he's mounting the dais. They've got the middle back to front and no one knows why. How many times have you heard an asterisk referred to as an asterix? A metathesis has occurred in the middle of the word. Relevant often comes out as revelant and integral often as integral, back to front. In fact, I heard a woman on national radio just a few days ago who's having a restaurant built or something and it was said to her that this can be difficult once you've you know, got plumbers and electricians and everything all at the right time. They never seem to come. Oh, no, 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 she said. Everything is fine. We are all intrigated. <laughs> now, it's very dangerous because when you hear this, you sometimes, the next day, you find yourself having to stop and think. I mean, when she said it, I knew it was wrong. And I wrote it down because I knew I was coming to see you today and I thought, intrigated. But it has a weird sort of logicality. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these metathesis things take over, but they haven't taken over yet. Let's look at anemones, which very frequently get planted as anenomies, and, and, and their cousin, their cousin word, anonymous, which is frequently anominous. I couldn't believe when I heard a historian of some eminence, no names, talking about colonization of New Zealand. I think he meant colonization, didn't like to say so, because he'd metathesized the middle of the word. I saw an item about a child whose parents, a rather lovely story actually, there's a uh, Chinese takeaway somewhere in New Lynn and the child this big, and the child is a brilliant pianist and was going to appear with the uh, Auckland Orchestra and was referred to as a prodigy. I think they meant a prodigy, but nobody told them. My two absolute favourites, and one of them is lost to us all. If any of you out there say the word vulnerable... You're a, lo you're a lost cause. You're a lost cause because it's now almost become vulnerable everywhere except in the dictionary. But my absolute favourite was uh, a gentleman who was ousted from his post as a sort of political candidate, uh, not a million miles from here, and when he was interviewed about whether or not the constituents supported him or not, he said loudly on the radio, indeed they do, I have been unindated with messages. <laughs> Are you looking worried, Murray? No? So that, that's the end of that bit. That's my sort of uh, academic analysis of what is happening in, in the English language in our country. I don't for a moment criticise any of it. We deserve a dialect. We are a separate country and we'll do things our way and to hell with the rest of them. Let's look now at some general words used in New Zealand which have changed their shape over the years. The first one is bathroom. Now, it used to be a very simple word because everybody's house had a room with a bath in it and a basin and a towel. 
And then probably next door, there was another smaller room with a lavatory in it. And that was absolutely standard architecture for many, many, many decades. There did grow a fashion, initially amongst rich people, to have a loo in the bathroom. But there are still how many hundreds of thousands of houses in New Zealand with a bathroom here and a lavatory or loo there? Well, this confuses Americans. If we have any Americans in the audience, I do venture to suggest that I'm hoping not to be offensive. I'm simply telling a truth. Americans would die rather than say the word lavatory, toilet or loo. It just isn't in their, in their horizon. So they always say bathroom. Now this I find, well, there's one aspect of it I find irritating, but I'll tell you that in a minute. The, the best example of how it's necessary really to use the correct word is a perfectly true story about a woman in St. Helier's who had an American visitor. And after a decent interval, the American visitor said, could she use the bathroom? Yes, yes, said the hostess, second door down the passage. Now, what the hostess was innocently unaware of was that the American actually needed the third door down the passage, but she'd said bathroom, so she was sent to the second door. Well, after a minute or two, the American reappeared in the doorway in a state of high tension <laughs> and said to the hostess, there is no bathroom in your bathroom. <laughs> which I thought was rather touching, <laughs> in that even in a state of high stress, she could not bring herself to say that word. But I found in my school teaching days that th there was a filtration into our language of this kind of usage. And girls would come to me and say, sir, can I leave the room? I need to go to the bathroom. And I would look sternly and say, we don't have any bathrooms. It's a school. Oh, well, sir, you know, I mean the lavatory. All right, well, if you mean the lavatory, say so. Off you go. And, and the, the gentle osmosis of American terminology annoys me, frankly, uh, and it annoys me in the supermarket, most of all in the supermarket, because there we have abandoned hens. We have abandoned poultry. We have abandoned chooks. And American advertising has somehow taken the word chicken which used to mean a little fluffy, cheap, cheap thing. Chicken has now, by advertising, advanced to much more elderly candidates. <laughs> it has the ring, it has the ring of youth, of softness, of succulent flesh, which, so, which poultry did too, if you got the right one. But now the word is abandoned to such an extent that out on the farm, it's quite likely they no longer keep chalks. They keep chickens. Probably if you want to buy a boiling fowl to make some stock, you'd be explaining to a blank-faced 15-year-old in the supermarket who's never heard the word before. The absurdity strikes you when you're walking out of the supermarket clutching a frozen so-called chicken size 22. <laughs> There is an illogicality about that which, which faintly irritates me, but as I keep bleating at you, um, a researcher simply observes. I, one, one is not a sociologist, and... Got a couple more. 
Uh, so if they're going to call it chicken and we're going to buy chicken size 22, well, I suppose it requires an adjustment in our brain. Let's look at the American word outage. Outage is a wonderful word. Um, it's, it's an American invention, and you hear it over there quite often. Um, if you're having trouble on the phone in America, the, one of those women comes on with zinc-plated voices and says, you are experiencing difficulty because of an outage. Of course, first time I heard it, I didn't know what it meant, but it actually means a sort of breakdown. But the good thing about outage, which is now creeping in here, like Auckland had a six-week power breakdown, we're at Auckland Girls Grammar running 1,500 teenagers for six weeks with no phone, no electricity, no lights, nothing. But we did it because the council told us it was an outage. <laughs> you see, if it's an outage, nobody did it. God did it. <laughs> if it's a breakdown, something has broken down and that man can be pointed to he was responsible. But if it's an outage, no, 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 it was from God. Let's look at the word service, which nowadays means do it yourself. There, <laughs> there is a preponderance of places around the city, around the country, which sell petrol to you and are called service stations. <laughs> ha ha. <laughs> the term is now interpreted as Providing something you want, as long as you obey the rules laid down to protect the staff from any effort. Otherwise, just forget the whole thing and go away. <laughs> now, the, end, the last word I'm going to mention is one close to our hearts. Do I have to stop now? Soon? One more word? Okay. The last word is uh, among my favourites, which is a euphemistic way of saying I hate it. And it is the word next. Now, next, if you look up any dictionary, means adjacent to, or immediately following. I'm standing next to a lectern. The bus outside the door isn't going to Helensville. It's the next bus which is going to Helensville, the one immediately following. Very simple. But in our country, the word has developed an entirely new meaning. Next means after the commercials. <laughs> There's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. You'll find it every single day, somebody will appear on the radio or on the television and saying, and we'll be crossing live to talk to the Prime Minister in Fiji next. <laughs> on comes the shampoo, the dog food, the apartment buildings in Oriwa, the floor cleaner, etc. for three minutes or so, and then finally we get to Fiji. Now, this is not in the print medium. If the print medium says we're going to do, you know, the life story of President Bush next Monday, then it happens next Monday. But in the broadcast media, the word is out. It's gone. It no longer means immediately adjacent to or immediately following. It means after the commercials. Watch and see if I'm right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.